You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are a God who loves and you are a God who brings renewal and new life. We pray that your spirit would now come on us as we turn to the reading and preaching of your word, that you would bring your newness to us even now, that we would not just walk away unchanged, but that we would respond by the power of your spirit with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, you brave people. It's good to see all of you guys here. I'm actually kind of amazed that so many of you are here in person and I know that there's um, many of you online with us right now, and so hi, it's good to, good to have you guys with us here too. Um, it's looking lovely outside, and I'm sure that we'll have some time to play in just a little bit. Uh, you are here for the start of a new sermon series that we're starting today um, on the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at this book really um, thoughtfully and carefully over the next couple of months from now into Lent and all the way to Easter. There's a great story about this book, the Gospel of Mark, um, about the late Russian Orthodox Archbishop, Anthony Bloom. Um, Anthony was a young man in communist Russia, and he was a very zealous communist himself. And one day, he was in Moscow, and he heard that there was a a talk happening about Christianity. Uh, And he went to the talk, and the man was talking about how claiming Christianity is true and claiming it's, it's worth listening to. And Anthony was just furious, and he went home, absolutely committed to prove that all of this was rubbish, and so he scrummaged around in his flat, and he found an old Bible. He thought, you know what, I'm just going to read some of this and figure out what this is all about, and then just write something and demonstrate that it's nonsense. So he flipped over the New Testament, and he found the shortest of the four Gospels, because he thought, you know, I don't need to spend too much time on this. I'm just going to give this a little bit of thought and then, you know, be done with it. So he opened to the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four, and he read through the Gospel of Mark, and then he read it again, and then he read it again, and then he went on and he read Matthew, and he read Luke, and he read John, and he stayed up the whole night, and by the next day, Anthony Bloom was a Christian. And uh, years later, he reflected on that as an older man, and he said, I know that God has a sense of humor because Mark's Gospel was written for someone who was exactly in my frame of mind. <laughs> it's written for the curious cynic. Clear when you look at this book carefully that Mark does not intend this to be a historical exploration. He intends it to be a personal confrontation. Uh, he believes that Mark is a living, that Jesus is a living person who confronts each and every one of us even now and invites us to follow him. And so if you're, if you're just like a person who is trying to explore what you believe and trying to figure out your faith, Mark is the perfect book for you. If you are a person who is kind of stagnant in your faith and you're just kind of drifting along, Mark is the perfect book for you. If you're a person who is active in your faith and you're looking to grow, Mark is the perfect book for you. It's a perfect book because this is not just a book. This is a confrontation with a living person who knows each of us where we are and knows just what to say to each one of us. So let's just begin with the very first section, Mark 1, uh, 1 through 13. If you have your Bibles uh, with you, if you want to grab a pew Bible, I invite you to 
to turn open to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to hear from Reagan and Mason as they read to us. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send a messenger ahead of you, who will prepare you what a voice of one was calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I. The straps of those whom sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent out him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been somewhere where you know that a very, very important person is about to show up? Where someone that everybody is looking forward to, everyone is anticipating, everyone is on the tip of their seat waiting for this VIP to appear. Uh, I think I've told you this before, but uh, when I lived in London after college and I worked for this guy named John Stott, we were invited to a garden party at Buckingham Palace. He, he was actually invited. I was his plus one. And um, we knew that the queen would be there. And when you see somebody really, really important like the queen, there's always kind of a three-step process, right? The first thing that happens is there, the, the announcement, the announcement. So... I got a big, fat, fancy-looking envelope in the mail with some fancy-looking writing on the front with my name and address, and I open it up, and it's a very fancy invitation, and it says, the queen requests your presence at the garden party. And so it's very fancy, and it's the announcement. You know, this is going to happen, and she's going to be there. So that's the first step. And then the second step is what you would call the preparation. So you go to the garden party, and everybody's standing around, and you're all eating, you know, cucumber sandwiches, things that British people like. And you're, you're all talking, but you're all, you know, kind of, kind of nervous because you know that you're preparing. The, the, the VIP is coming. The queen is going to show up. And all of a sudden, there's a trumpet sound, and the preparation is now here, and everyone hushes and quiet and is ready for this person to appear. That's the preparation, okay? So you got the announcement, you got the preparation, and then suddenly, the arrival. The doors of Buckingham Palace open up. Out come the guards with the funny hats. Out come the corgis, and in and out steps the queen herself, wearing bright yellow, canary yellow dress and hat, right? The arrival. So, so the announcement, the preparation, the arrival. And what I want you all to see is that 
in these first 13 verses of the book of Mark, this is exactly what Mark is doing. He is preparing us for the visitation of the great king. And we see right there, we see an announcement, we see the preparation, and we see the arrival. And we're going to just touch on each of those things as we see the one come that everyone has been waiting for. Okay? Are you all with me, friends? Are you all with me, friends, from home? You're with me, kids? Okay, great. So here, let's go, let's go. So first, the announcement, okay, the announcement. If you've read any of the other three Gospels, um, you know that they all four Gospels start in really different ways, right? So Matthew begins, like we saw last month in December, with a really funny list, a genealogy. So Matthew's concern is to link Jesus with the ancient history of Israel. Luke begins with all these great stories about the nativity of Jesus and his birth and the shepherds and the angels. You know, he's really interested in the birth of Jesus. John is the most philosophical and theological of the four. He begins with the very beginning of creation itself. In the beginning was the word, right? Now, Mark, he's like, he's too busy for any of that. You know, he's got no introductions, no historical background, none of that fluff. He just wants to get right to the point. So he says, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God. Announcement. Let's just unpack this a little bit. First, he says the beginning. Actually, that's the first word in the gospel. If you read Mark in Greek, the first word is arche, beginning. He is signaling that something new is about to happen. Something new is about to blast and invade into the world. He's probably wanting you to think of the first words of the whole Bible in Genesis chapter one. Anybody remember what the first three words of the Bible are, class? Can you say it? In the beginning. It's in the beginning. God once in the beginning brought something out of nothing. God brought a new creation. And now in this new beginning, an even newer creation is happening in the midst of the old beginning. And then he says the beginning of the gospel. Now we're just so used to hearing that word it doesn't mean much to us anymore. But back then, 2,000 years ago, gospel is not a religious word. It's actually a military word, a, 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 a military word or, a, or an announcement word that meant something has happened that has changed history. So when an army would win a battle, a messenger would ride their horse back to the city, and they would announce the gospel. Good news. The army has won. The situation has changed forever. Or if an important military or a political leader like Caesar Augustus is born, someone goes out into the town square and announces the gospel, good news, the emperor is born, history is changed forever. And so Mark does something interesting. He takes that secular military political word and he applies it to this person. He says, in the beginning, the good news, something is about to happen that is going to change the course of history forever. And what is it? This person, Jesus Christ, son of God. And unlike the other three gospel writers, Mark is not interested in building his slow case about who Jesus is. He just, from the very first verse, tells you exactly who he thinks he is. First of all, he is the Christ. And I hope you know by now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is actually a, a, uh, a, 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 a word that means anointed one, Messiah. The Jewish people have been looking forward to this great ruler, this king to come and bring God's rule and defeat their enemies and save them from trouble. And Mark is very clear, that guy that we've been waiting for, here he is. He's the one. 
But then he amplifies it, intensifies it. He says, not only is he the Christ, he is the son of God. He actually is more than just a human figure who is the sovereign king. He's actually this divine figure. And then he quotes verses, in verse two and three, he quotes Isaiah saying that a messenger is coming, we'll meet him in a moment, to prepare the way of the Lord himself. And so he's implying, of course, that the person that we're about to meet is not just a special anointed human being, but is actually Yahweh, the great visitation of God himself to his people that Israel has been waiting for for thousands of years. So here's the announcement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God. A big fat envelope showed up in your mailbox. It's looking fancy. You open it up, pull it out. What does it say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God. Someone is coming that is about to change the world and change history forever. Are you ready? You know, um, we forget sometimes, coming to church every week, singing the songs, doing the church thing, you kind of forget sometimes what this whole thing is all about. What is the point of all of this, y'all? And what I love about Mark is he just gets straight to the point. He says Christianity, in the end, it's not this religious system. It's not a system of rules and values. It's not a set of propositions. It's not a worldview. In the end, Christianity is simply this, Jesus Christ. What it all boils down to is this person, Jesus Christ. He is the good news. He is the new beginning. He is the hope of God's people. He is the anointed one. He is God come to be with us. And you know, you might be exploring your faith and you might have a lot of really complicated questions about spirituality and about Christianity, you know, about heaven and hell and about sexuality and about evil and about, you know, the, the meaning of existence and all, all those things. Those are important questions. But if Mark were here, he would say, you can think about all that later when it really comes down to, is this person who he is and what he's come to do? What are you gonna do with him? So that's the announcement. Okay, next though comes the preparation. You might be ready to meet this person that he is announcing, but you can't meet him yet. You gotta stay at the party with the cucumber sandwiches a little bit. You gotta get prepared. And so on the scene comes the preparer. And who is that? John the Baptist. This is the craziest dude that you will ever meet in the scriptures. He, it says, kids, listen to this. It says he's wearing, I want to try to imagine this. He's wearing clothing made of camel hair, which is just weird, right? It's not just camel skin, just, just camel hair with a, a leather belt. And he eats locusts and wild honey. I'm sure packed with protein. Not something that um, I would choose myself. I mean, and I, and I was like, I wonder if this was common dress back then. I looked up a commentator and said, no, no, no. Actually, he would look as crazy back then as he would look today. <laughs> so, so everybody's like, this is a crazy dude. He's got this whole prophet look going on. You know, the, um, the, the, the ancient Jewish people believed that when the Messiah came, that Elijah or someone like Elijah would come and prophesy just before his arrival. And so this is this role that John the Baptist is serving. He's showing up to proclaim the one who has come. What is he doing? Look at verse four. It says, he came baptizing and preaching a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. Repent, he's saying. Repent means, literally, turn around. Reverse direction. You're facing this way, now face this way. Do something new. Uh, a, tra- a way we could actually translate it today is we could say, wake up. Wake up. When, when my kids were little, like on Christmas morning, they, you know, you, they come up right, I'm deep asleep. They come right up to your face. Wake up. <laughs> and this is what John is doing. He is trying to wake these sleeping people up out of their slumber to wake them up to what is about to happen. People were just sleepwalking. God hadn't spoken or done anything in 400 years. And so they're just sleepwalking, kind of going about their business, not dealing with their issues, just coasting on autopilot. And John is yelling to them and us, wake up, wake up. Do you ever feel like you're sleepwalking? Do you ever feel like you're living in a spiritual fog and you know that there's some things that aren't in your right in your life? You know that there's some things that need to change, but you just can't be bothered to do anything about it, right? It's just too much work. You don't want to deal with your sin and your selfishness, with your anger and your addictions, with your fear and your hatred, with your anxiety and your compulsions, with your broken marriage or your broken relationships. You just, you don't have the energy to deal with it, so you just choose instead to just kind of stumble along. But John doesn't let us off the hook. He's saying, wake up. Someone is coming that demands a course correction, a reversal. Could you imagine if suddenly you heard, you were told the president or this movie star and some great athletes about to show up at your house? What do you do? You get up off the couch. You stop watching Netflix. You start vacuuming the rug. You comb your hair. You get dressed. You know, you clean the kitchen. You get ready for this person that's coming. A change is needed. Wake up. But then he says this, which is really interesting. He says, in the end, this this change that's required of you is not change that you can bring about in yourself. You can't change yourself. Sarah and I knew that we had a really independent little girl on our hands when one of our baby girls, when she was about one year old, started trying to change her own diaper. And we tried to help her. She'd say, by myself. (laughs) And you know what? That never really turned out so well. And, and it's kind of like John is saying the same thing. Like when it comes to the mess that you're in, you can't change yourself. You can't change it. You're just too deep in. And so what you need is someone to come from the outside to change you in a way that you cannot do for yourself. And that's what he says about this person, verse 8. He says, I am preparing the way for him. Someone is coming who is so powerful that even though I am baptizing you now with water, he will baptize you with the Spirit of God. I can plunge you into water, he will plunge you into God. I can maybe change your behavior, he can change your heart, your soul, he can change you from the inside out. This is the one that is coming. So wake up, get ready, figure out what needs to be changed. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, so we've got the announcement, we've got the preparation, and then finally, We have the arrival. Look with me at verses 9 through 13. Now, the arrival of Jesus, I think, is not what you would expect, right? There's been all this buildup, this Messiah, the Son of God, 
The, the, uh, the one who John says, I do not, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He's so powerful, so glorious. He actually has the power of the Spirit of God in his hand. And so, goodness, this guy's about to show up. You're expecting something pretty amazing, right? I mean, like flying in on unicorns or, you know, an entourage of angels or something. I mean, you're expecting something pretty amazing when this guy shows up. But instead, what does it say? It says this ordinary guy from a little podunk town named Nazareth just walks right up. He looks like everybody else. And it says that he just walks right down into the river and gets baptized like everybody else by John the Baptist. But something extraordinary happens, doesn't it? Three things happen as Jesus comes up out of the water. Did you, did you, did you hear that in the text, guys? What are the three things that happen? The first thing that happens is the heavens torn open, torn open. Now, I want you to imagine, it's, 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 I mean, these things are so hard to imagine. It's not like there was like suddenly like a tear in the sky, you know, like in, what's that movie? One of those Marvel movies where there's like a tear in the sky and all the aliens start coming through. You know, it's not like that. It's not like that. So if you remember in, our, in the Book of Revelation series, heaven, in the biblical worldview, heaven is not like up in the clouds somewhere. Heaven is actually God's dimension. And God's dimension is right with us, alongside us all the time, but it's separated by an invisible curtain, if you will, right? And every once in a while, that curtain opens and we're given access into the divine presence of God. And so what happens is Jesus comes out of the water, that invisible curtain just somehow rips and heaven blasts through. We say, oh my goodness, this guy is actually tearing apart the curtain that separates heaven from earth. And then the second thing that happens as he comes out is it says the spirit of God comes down on him and it looks like a dove. Now we don't really know what Mark's getting out of there, but we're, he's probably going back to Genesis 1 and 2 where it says the spirit of God hovered over the waters like a dove. That this new creation is happening and the very presence and anointing of God is on this person. And then the third thing that happens is that God the Father actually speaks from heaven, which hardly ever happens. He speaks from heaven and he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so if there's any doubt at this moment, heaven to earth to bring the anointing of the presence of the spirit of God and to be the very presence of God as the Messiah of God's people, here he is. He's finally shown up. Now, there's one though outstanding question, isn't there? At least a question that I have. Why? was Jesus getting baptized, right? I mean, baptism is for sinners who need forgiveness, not for the Savior who forgives them. So why is Jesus going down into the water to be baptized? Well, let me just give you an example. Um, some of you who have had cancer, or some of you know someone who has had cancer, have often had the experience where a dear friend of the person who is suffering cancer, as that person goes through chemotherapy and begins to lose their hair, I've often seen people shave their own heads as a sign of solidarity with the one who is enduring the chemo, right? It's almost like saying, you know what? This is not my plight, it's yours. But in this very small way, I will take on a portion of this plight in solidarity with you in this journey. Now that's a it's an incomplete metaphor. 
And yet, in a very cosmic way, an infinite way, Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, who is the Holy One, who does not need that, yet enters down into our experience in complete solidarity with sinners, saying, this is not my plight, and yet I choose to enter into the waters, enter into the human experience, enter into the mess of humanity to take your experience on as my own. But it's even more intense because not only is Jesus sharing it, he is actually, in a way, representing humanity, taking on the whole plight of humanity upon himself. It would be like your friend not just shaving her head, but actually somehow taking your cancer into her own body, saying, I will actually take your plight as your representative and endure this instead of you. And so this is what we see happening here, friends, is that Jesus is actually taking, at this moment, he is, he is willingly receiving the vocation as the representative of fallen humanity, taking our experience upon himself, the calling to be the redeemer. Bruner, the theologian Daryl Bruner says this, Jesus begins his public ministry in a river among sinners, and he ends his life on a cross between thieves. This is what he came to do, to live and die as our representative in total solidarity with us. And why does he do this? Why would he take our place in the waters? So that we can have his own place as the child of God. Jesus takes our identity as sinners so that we can claim his identity as God's beloved. I want you to throw up this, uh, this, this sentence that, that God says to Jesus for a moment here. I just want us to take a moment to, to look at this. This is what God says to Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, there is a, on one level, this can only be said to Jesus. He is the only begotten son of the Father. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is only truly the unique son of God. And yet, Jesus enters into our experience, enters into the waters as our representative, as our substitute, so that we, through Christ, can also have these words said to us. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. You know, I love the author Henry Nouwen. Um, and he actually wrote a whole book based on these words called The Life of the Beloved. And this is what Henry Nouwen says. I'm just going to read you a lengthy quote here just because it's very meaningful. Um, Nouwen, first he talks about Jesus, and he says this. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, he heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. These words revealed the true identity of Jesus as the beloved. Jesus truly heard that voice and all his thoughts, words, and actions came forth from his deep knowledge that he was infinitely loved by God. And then the next, he says, Jesus lived from that inner place of love. Although human rejection, jealousies, resentments, and hatred did hurt him deeply, he remained anchored in the love of the Father. You know, Jesus did not have an easy life. Jesus' life was marked by suffering and pain and rejection. In fact, just after the baptism, what's the next thing that happens? He's driven into the wilderness to fight the devil for 40 days. And so what got through Jesus, all of the pain and all of the evil and all of the rejection and all of the suffering and all the persecution, what enabled Jesus to endure through all of that? The inner voice of love that he knew, no matter what anybody has said or did to him, he was the beloved of God. But then Nowen goes on to say this. He says, 
that I know now that the words spoken to Jesus when he was baptized are words spoken also to me and to all who are brothers and sisters of Jesus. My tendencies towards self-rejection and self-deprecation make it hard to hear these words truly and let them descend into the center of my heart. But once I have received these words fully, I am set free. Listen, friends, I am set free from my compulsion to prove myself to the world and can live in it without belonging to it. Once I have accepted the truth that I am God's beloved child, unconditionally loved, I can be sent into the world to speak and to act as Jesus did. Do you hear what he's saying? Life is so hard. It is so hard to be a human being. Do you hear what Lisa said a few minutes ago? about all of our neuroses and of all of our compulsions and all of the ways that we struggle, all of the ways that we deal with insecurities and jealousies and, and, and self-esteem. I mean, that, that has been an ongoing life battle for me. And the, and the constant voices of rejection that we hear from ourselves, the rejection of the voices that we hear from other people. And on top of this, being a Christian sometimes doesn't feel like it helps matters. Sometimes it feels like it just makes things worse. Driven into the wilderness, battling evil. And so the question is, how are you going to get through? How are you going to be, how are you going to do this life without collapsing in and falling into depression and despair? And that one says this, to hear the inner voice of love, to hear the voice of God saying to you, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. For this to be the very core of your existence. What is at the core of your existence, friends? that you're good, that you're talented, that you're pretty, that you're accomplished, that you're rich, that you're a good dad or a good worker, a good grandmother? What, I mean, what, what's at the core? No one says, if anything other than this is at the core of your existence, you won't make it. I am the beloved. Can you see God saying those words to you? Or when you picture God is looking at you does he have kind of a frown or a grimace on his face? He's sort of like, well, I guess I'll take her. No. In Christ, God looks at you and says, you are the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus came to descend into the waters, to take what is ours, that we might have what is his, his identity as the beloved. So that's why this announcement is so amazing, Right? The big fat envelope is sitting on the table. What are you going to do? The announcement, a new beginning is coming. The one who has come into the world, who has changed the world in history forever. The preparation, repent, wake up, take stock of your life, get ready to be changed. The arrival, he's come. And he's come not to demand your servitude. He's come to take what is yours, that you might have what is his, that you might know forever that you are the beloved. Are you ready for him? Let's pray. Let me just take a moment to imagine, to listen for the voice of God in your own life right now. Imagine him saying your name. Say your name. And hear him say, you are the beloved. In you, I am well pleased.
Thank you, Lord, that you have come to redeem and to save and to rescue. Thank you that Jesus came not to make much of himself, but to make much of us and to enter into our experience in solidarity as our representative, to take upon himself our own sin and experience that we might have his identity as the beloved of God. May we learn to claim that truth for ourselves in the deepest core of our identity. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.